First, though, we are taking a look at what is happening and what preparations are taking place in BC schools. I have tasked schools specifically to take stock and prepare plans to safely operate over the coming months with the potential for reduced staff and keeping children safely in school and reducing the risk of functional closures because of staff illness. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking yesterday. Let's bring in Jordan Tinney, the superintendent at the Surrey School District. Thank you so much for being with us. No worries. Happy to be here. When you hear that from Dr. Bonnie Henry about making sure that there is a plan in place, we'll get to what a functional closure might look like in a couple of minutes. But how do you put that plan in place, given the rate of transmission and preparing for potential staff members and a big number of staff members to potentially be off sick? Well, I think, you know, one of the things, you know, that we are doing this week, why we've been given the days is this gives us the time to put those plans in place. So, uh, unfortunately, we've been in this world before where school has moved online and we've had to have instruction for home or from home. And, uh, you know, we've, we've learned a lot over all of the adjustments we've made. So teachers are preparing units and materials and lessons so that if we have to, in the case of, you know, just having too much staff away, if we have to flip online and have students working once again, again from home, then, then we'll be ready to do that. Are there a number of teachers on call or are, is there a certain number as far as the threshold that you would know as far as if teachers are out sick? Are there a, a, enough teachers on call to fill in a certain amount or do you know kind of where that, that number kind of runs out as far as being able to keep the school open? Yeah, it, it's a good question. One of the, the key pieces is, you know, what's the trigger um, but of course, it depends, um, you know, who is absent, right? Like, uh, you know, a principal being absent is different from a kindergarten teacher being absent. So um, you always have to look at not only how many TTCs are available, but which positions need filling. For us on a typical day, we, we generally have, uh, you know, four to 600 people away, teachers away. Um, and so we know that, that the threshold we'll be looking for is, you know, how much beyond that and we'll be monitoring it on a daily basis. Uh, and if we get to, you know, eight or 900, that's, that's likely too many for us. You know, we have um, in the range of fewer than 1,000 TTOCs overall. So if we have 1,100 absences, well, there's just no way we could backfill. So a, a normal day or an average day, I, I loathe to use the word normal these days, but four to 600 teachers absent every day? Yep, that's about that's pretty typical. Of course, it fluctuates all over, um, but that's pretty 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 common for us. And we have developed in our our guidelines kind of triggers for you know what we think would 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 cause us to consider a functional closure. But that's a regular day. And out of how many teachers is that? Oh, we've got six six thousand teachers. Okay. And and so that would be something. So we know the system can function with that number of teachers being away. And like you said, but if you're getting up to the 800, 900 or exceeding teachers on call, would that be when we, we turn into that going online or, or these, these functional closures? Yeah. So the, what we do is first and foremost... Um, the first part is that the, on the considerations for a trigger is that health has not declared an outbreak, right? But we know we've had school closures because of COVID 
um, clusters and outbreaks before. So where there is not an outbreak, but we have large amounts of staff being absent, we're, we're going to get a daily report from human resources around what the numbers are. And of course, we will work with those schools. But we think when staff absenteeism is getting you know greater than 25%, but again, of course, it varies depending on the nature of the absenteeism, then we're going to have to consult about whether we're going to be able to keep that school open. Um, and do we have things like backfill available from TTOCs and um, and spare board for support staff? So if we reach that type of a threshold, then we would consider going into a functional closure. But again, it's highly dependent on on the unique context. Right. And, and when we talk about keeping the schools open and trying to find a way, even if we're dealing with greater numbers of absenteeism, is it keeping the school open and keeping it functioning at the same level that it is under under full staffing situations, a full staffing complement? Or is it finding ways? Because I'm just thinking parents will, will be put in that situation if suddenly their schools are closed and they're going to be scrambling for childcare or they're going to be scrambling to figure out what to do if their kids aren't going to school. Are, are there plans where kids could still go to school, but maybe it doesn't look the same as when you have the full complement of staff? Yeah, there there is, um, but it looks different on different days. So, so just to give you an idea, we deal with functional closures all the time with things like uh, snow days or uh, power outages or terrible weather. You know, there are water mains break. There are all sorts of things that happen when sometimes we don't have enough staff to run a building. In terms of this case, what's different is in all of those other situations, we're planning for like one day or, you know, a very short period of time. So the staff always manage and rally around and supervise the kids we have and take care of them. Um, and then we go back to regular instruction the next day. The difference here is that first day that we're calling like a day zero, an inception day, that's when we're going to have to determine whether or not the school will close for um, up to seven days. And then what is the communication out to parents? And then how do we flip online? And then the next day would be used for planning to actually make the transition. Like some students will need hardware, teachers will need to get their home set up and ready to go. And then we would begin instruction wholly online on the next day. So to your question, one of the key pieces is we want to be able to provide um, quality instruction, um, but it would be online. Right. And and I would imagine, though, even that is unknown at this point in that if somebody is away, say, whether they have come down with COVID or for any other reason, I mean, thankfully, it's showing that a lot of these cases are mild and that somebody would still be able to work. But there are going to be scenarios, I would imagine, where somebody's away sick and is actually symptomatic and can't teach a class online. And so what happens in that scenario? Yeah, it, it's one of the great uh, complexities. What happens in that scenario is that's where we do have to rely on our teachers, teacher on call, our, our TTOCs and our spare board support staff who are also critical. But you get to the point, as you describe, of, you know, there may be a place where functioning even online might become difficult if the people truly are unable to work at all. We're making the assumption right now, um, for good or for bad, or, you know, we'll have to see that, that the symptoms will hopefully be minor and that while people will be at home, um, they hopefully will be able to continue to work. And, and if they're not, then, then we're going to be relying totally on our spare board and our TTOC forces for sure. And you mentioned that uh, that idea or that the kind of the comparison, and I think that that's that makes a lot of sense. In that, where a water main break would be a one day closure, if we're now looking at a closure 
where the school, it would be for seven days. Do you make that call based on if you have a certain number of staff members out on COVID protocols, you know they're not going to be coming back for at least five days or they're isolating for five days. So does that at least make it a little bit easier in that you can say, okay, this closure is going to be for at least this period of time? I think so, but there, you know, it gets tricky again because people aren't going to get tested, right? Like where the message to people is, hey, if you're double vaxxed, don't go get tested. So if I say, hey, Jill, you know, you teach grade three, um, you say you're you're ill, um, you know, is are you going to be good to go again in one day or two days or three days? And I don't think you're going to know. So we're going to have to take stock of of making a really what is our best guess of how long our staff away for because if we know that you know gee maybe today is a difficult day but all staff will be back in two days then we want kids back face to face so um you know it's it's going to be really tricky to call but that's why we you know we kind of developed a template that says okay it's seven days and this is what it looks like each day and in throughout that is communications with staff and parents around okay how what is the status of the closure and where are we Uh, We heard from the federal government earlier today about a lot of rapid tests that are going to be delivered to the provinces. Have you been given any information as far as bringing those rapid tests into the school environment and making those available for staff members? No, no. We know that those discussions are happening, but I I haven't seen personally any any details of exactly what that, that flow looks like. Do you think that would help? Oh, I think testing would help. I think in the end of the day, you know, if you're talking for staff absenteeism um, as really the driver for functional closure, um, I mean, if staff are sick and they can't come to work, it really, like I'm not trying to sound cold or anything, but it doesn't matter if they have COVID or they don't have COVID. It's are they able to work? And and that's the bottom line. I think the other piece that kind of gets lost a little bit is we have been relying and we do rely over, particularly through COVID and over the years, on our non-enrolling staff, teachers uh, who don't have an enrolling classroom, like a, you know, maybe a, a learning support teacher or a teacher librarian. We've relied on um, non-enrolling teachers a lot to backfill when we're in difficulty. But we don't want to overtax our non-enrolling teachers as well. That you know we can't do an entire you know keep the school open you know at all costs so that we're drawing on every single non-enrolling person we have. So we're going to have to figure that one out as well as we go. But as far as the testing, um, you know, for me as a superintendent, my only question is, is the person able to work or are they not able to work? Right. And and Jordan, uh, just one other question. Parents listening to this, and I know a lot of parents are very stressed, wondering what it's going to look like starting next week and bracing for these potential functional closures. What advice do you give to parents right now? I think for for parents right now, my expectation is that school next week will look just like school uh, normally has during the pandemic with kids in school face to face. Uh, We hope that we don't get to a place of having, you know, insufficient staff to run a building. The other part is, um, so that's what I expect on Monday of next week. The other thing is certainly for for Surrey's, we'll we'll be putting out this template for parents uh, so that parents will know what a closure actually looks like. So for you as a parent, for example, you will know, okay, I'm going to get at least um, at the very minimum one full day's notice before moving online. So they'll know what that communication looks like uh, from the school and from the district. All right. Jordan Tinney, thanks so much for your time today and for talking about this. No worries. Always a pleasure. You take care. Bracing for more snow in Metro Vancouver. A bit later on in the program, we're going to check in with Environment Canada. Right now, though, we are going to talk with Tina Lovegreen, who is a spokesperson with TransLink. Tina, thanks so much for being with us. 
You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I know yesterday when the snow hit in the afternoon, there were a lot of roads where buses were having trouble getting up the hills and were spinning out. What is TransLink doing to uh, prepare and to get ready for another blast of snow? Yeah, absolutely. So we are in touch with Environment Canada, who who you just mentioned will be on your show later. And, and they forecast heavy snow starting at 9 p.m. and throughout the night, which will be followed by freezing rain. So in anticipation of that, we are doing all we can to keep the buses moving and to get people to where they need to go. We have called extra staff for tonight and tomorrow. I know our crews are working to clear transit loops and centres in the meantime. For the afternoon commute in particular, we are swapping out our articulated 60-foot buses to 40-foot buses as those are a bit more agile in snowy conditions. And we plan to do the same for tomorrow morning. Um, We are spraying de-icer on our trolley overheads and we will have transit supervisors out this evening scouting major roads to identify which areas are particularly challenging and to communicate that information with municipalities to help clear and prioritize bus routes for clearing and and snow plowing and sanding. I know a couple of years ago, actually, it's probably more than that now. I remember there was a big to do about the testing of the snow socks. And I think it was on Burnaby Mountain that those were being tested on some of the buses. Is that something that's used when snow hits? Yeah, absolutely. Snow socks are something that we utilize, um, particularly for, or sorry, uh, tire socks rather, on buses serving Burnaby Mountain and North Shore and Vancouver routes, which, you know, are, are more hilly and traction can be an issue. We actually used them um, this past week to, to serve our UBC routes and we saw great success there. So uh, we do implement them when we can and when they're required, they are a tool in our toolbox to, to help with some of those more challenging uh, spots. What happens when, and inevitably it it happens whether a street hasn't been plowed or the snow has just hit so quickly at one of those higher elevations, if a bus simply can't get uh, to where it's going, if it needs to stop or if we see an abandoned bus? I know there were some comments made uh, during the last snowfall as well that people had to get off the bus, and it makes sense, but that people that maybe have mobility challenges or weren't doing so well in the snow then found themselves being told, you have to to get off this bus and find another way. Uh, how do you deal with something like that? Yeah, and that is really concerning. There, there are often snow banks, and that's an issue for accessibility and, and seniors in particular. So we have transit supervisors on hand, and they can help municipalities by clearing stops to make sure our stops remain clean and accessible. And I know yesterday we had our transit supervisors out shoveling and 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 having sand, but. A big part of that is making sure we're communicating with municipalities to alert them to those problem areas so they can prioritize them for clearing and sanding so um, all of our customers can access our system uh, safely. And we talk a lot about the buses, and I think you touched on this, but what about the other systems, whether people are taking SkyTrain or Canada Line? What should they expect there if we do get this big wallop of winter? Yeah, absolutely. So really, we encourage our customers to build extra time in their commute to dress warm and to check their route before they go. And they can do that by using our trip planner, by signing up for transit alerts or calling our customer information line. And they can be reached at 604-953-3333. So always a good idea to check before you head out the door. You mentioned as well that some of the buses will be replaced or those bigger buses will be replaced. Does that mean that there will be reduced service or will people, should people be expecting that they might have to wait a bit longer? 
Yeah, so we do encourage customers to build extra time in their commute. There may be delays depending on how severe the conditions are tomorrow. Um, We swap out the articulated buses with the 40-foot buses because they're more agile on steep and slippery conditions. But they are smaller buses. Um, We try and put out as much service as we possibly can um, and and make sure that we have transit supervisors assisting any buses that are stuck or having problems and, and making sure we relay that information to municipalities to get their help in clearing the road. Uh, It's got to be even more so. I know that people are now worried about uh, the higher transmission of the Omicron variant and people are trying to keep their distance uh, and given this uh, kind of packing on to the smaller buses, it's kind of uh, the the double whammy, I suppose, of the winter weather and also people needing to get to where they're going and trying to stay safe. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll remind our customers again that wearing a mask while taking transit is mandatory. And we have seen high compliance, but it's always worthwhile mentioning that as well. We've also um, are limiting, you know, socializing on on depots and garages and offices to maintain kind of those non-critical interactions. Um, And so, you know, we are doing all we can. Of course, uh, with COVID, we're following all of the provincial health guidelines and as you may know, that um, our employees um, at TransLink and across its operating companies are, um, have been asked to provide uh, proof of full vaccination. We've seen very high registration there. Should people, when if we do get another big dump of snow and it is impacting the roads, is it still people, if, if people are looking ahead either at the schedules, at the bus stops, or if they're on their phones, if they're if they're looking at the real-time bus, is it still accurate at all when we're talking about a snowstorm, or is it more so there are going to be huge delays and people should, like you say, dress accordingly and be prepared? Maybe you're going to be waiting a bit longer. Yeah, so customers should expect delays. I mean, our buses are as reliable as the roads are clear. So if you're having a tough time driving in the snow in your car, just imagine how challenging it is for our buses. But we do encourage customers to consult with our many uh, trip planning um, devices and applications, such as the trip planner or signing up for transit alerts. You can get this information straight to your phone. They'll text you. You can um, text your bus route number as well, or even call our customer information line if you wish. And that information information will be as accurate as possible. It's a very fluid situation. So checking up on our website, looking for transit alerts um, there is, is, is the best um, option out there. And how are trolley buses doing as far as I know in the past, we've also had issues with the, the trolley lines freezing up, especially overnight and causing some problems there. Yeah, so anytime that we have kind of lower temperatures or, uh, in the forecast, we activate our snow plan, which includes running de-icer on the trolley overheads. Um, it also includes running special SkyTrain de-icer on the power rail to keep trains moving and running trains overnight to keep SkyTrain tracks clear. Um, you may even see SkyTrain attendants driving the trains manually to avoid delays from, from minor snowfall that can trigger track intrusion alarms. So yes, um, we de-ice the trolley overheads anytime um, that we expect that there's going to be a, a cold weather or a dip in the temperature. And this one might seem obvious, but I've even seen yesterday again in the afternoon when there was so much snow, uh, people people in the best of weather situations sometimes will run across the crosswalk when there's two seconds left or three seconds left. Uh, is it is it something that you want to remind people as far as as well a bus just like any other vehicle? is likely going to have or could have trouble stopping in this type of weather. And for pedestrians, uh, they need to stay out of the way. 
I mean, that's a really great reminder. Um, you know, dressing for the weather, making sure you're wearing proper footwear and taking your time to get to, to where you need to go. I mean, it's, it's, it can be really slippery on the sidewalks there. I've experienced it myself, and I'm sure all of us can attest to that. So, yes, please just build that extra time for your commute, uh, dress for the weather, and wear uh, proper footwear as, as conditions can be very slippery on, on across uh, the entire system, including the sidewalks getting up to the buses. All right, Tina, good advice as we prepare and continue with this winter storm watch. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, this might not be a huge surprise, but the headline reads, Fraser Valley real estate market sees busiest year in 100-year history. And joining us to talk more about this is Larry Anderson, a realtor in Surrey, also the president of the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board. Thanks so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome, Jill. Welcome to be here. Great to be here. <laughs> Thank- yeah, welcome to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, welcome to you. Yeah. Busiest year in the 100-year history. That's pretty big. Yeah, you know, just to put that in perspective, our board processed almost 28,000 sales in the multiple, uh, multiple listing service in 2021. That's an a increase of 39% two thousand twenty and uh, 15% over the last banner year which was 2016 it's just been incredible uh, I know some of the factors that have come in or that are being kind of used as examples of why this is happening has been low interest rates but we've had low interest rates for quite some time what do you think it is that's fueling this uh, well actually ironically a lot of it seems to be stemming uh, even from the pandemic itself. So a lot of people all of a sudden have to uh, change uh, how they work. Uh, Zoom, working from home remotely, uh, no, no longer in the office, so they have to find more space. Uh, maybe they live downtown. Now they need two offices in the home and have that private office. So that stemmed a lot of it. And uh, just the fact that uh, the demand is, is so high, so it creates that... Uh, kind of that market sense that uh, there's no inventory. So to put it in perspective, a balanced market is usually when we were selling like 15 to 20 percent of inventory selling, we've been seeing it where it's 80 to 90 percent. We just can't keep up with demand. Right, because unless we're building a whole lot of new housing and doing it really quickly, the people people need to go somewhere if they're selling their homes. And are you seeing that? Are you seeing an exodus of people? Uh, no, not really. I, I think it's it's a combination of uh, the style of buyers, like uh, you know, in in probably since '80s or whatever. The uh, the investors have realized real estate in, in the Lower Mainland um, has been just an amazing investment. So we're we're attracting lots of investors to real estate compared to just someone buying it for their home. So you you've doubled the demand just through that. Which, uh, I mean, makes sense, but not great news for people who are thinking that they'll still be able to get a bit of a deal or be able to afford. It's going, that's going to push a lot of people out of being able to, able to afford a place, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. It makes it uh, you know, very difficult if you look at the first-time buyers that are trying to buy something with 5% down and a lot of sellers are seeing non-subject offers. Uh, makes it tough for them to consider uh, an offer that has subject to financing on it. 
And when we talk about the Fraser Valley, we're talking about a pretty large area. Are there certain parts of the Fraser Valley where you're seeing more activity uh, as opposed to others? Well, uh, you know, ironically, um, I do I do these stats every month, and it seems to change monthly, uh, depending. Like some months, it's been in Delta, then it's been in Guilford, and and I think a lot of that. Uh, when we look at demand, um, could be just with a few new buildings going up, like a nice condo high-rise with a couple hundred units. Well, that will um, change the demand in our area automatically. Right. Okay. Uh, looking at some of the numbers that have been put out as well, and, and these numbers, I mean, they seem high for anywhere, let, uh, and, including the Fraser Valley. So we're looking at single-family detached homes. Uh, 1.5 million is the benchmark price, and that's an increase of 3.6%. So not a huge increase, but that still seems like a pretty big price. Yeah, and and I, I think that's where the um, the the product has changed. So. Uh, because of the detached homes becoming priced at the 1.5 million benchmark, it makes it the condo is now the entry level. Uh, it's the only way people can get into the market, and you got to start somewhere, and and that's why you see the condo sales in our region uh, so hot. Right. So, what are condos looking like? Because I also noticed that townhomes that increased was it also a three point five percent? But but both of those two, if you look back another year, the the percentage increase was something around thirty three percent. So a big jump from twenty twenty. Yeah. If, if we go like just year over year, sales of detached homes like they increased by almost thirty two percent in twenty twenty one compared to twenty twenty. Townhomes thirty three almost 34%. Apartments increased by 69%. You know, so it, it's, uh, it's, it's, we just can't keep up with the demand. And and what is that doing? I mentioned the benchmark price for a single detached uh, townhomes is around 765000 uh, It would make sense, I would imagine, that the prices are also jumping, not only the number of sales. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So it's... Um, we're seeing prices on on every product um, moving up uh, the same 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 categories, right? So condos, townhomes, detached—they're all going up across the board. Where do you see it going? As far as again, so the busiest year in the hundred years that the re- that the real estate board has been in existence. Where do you see things going from here? Uh, great question, Jill. Um, like I say, I, I've, I've been doing these stats calls almost for uh, every month for a year now, and every month we think uh, we've hit the peak, and we're always wrong because the next month's stronger. Um, we have, uh, you know, threat of rising interest rates that could stimulate the market. Uh, one of the things. Uh, going forward, we always look forward to spring because usually spring is is a active time for us. Lots more, lot of more product on the market. Um, one of the things we're finding now is people are concerned and and hesitant to sell their property, put their home on the market because there's nothing for them to buy. So it, it it's actually self inflicted um, because they don't put their house on the market. No one can buy their house, and it just. Um, stems down from there. 
Right. I mean, I guess unless you're moving way out of the area or you have something in mind or you, you know exactly wh- where you're going, that would be very stressful. Yeah, and and most people, I would say, um, you know, and I'm making an assumption, uh, do not want to own two houses at the same time and and take that risk of of having to sell theirs and at any time, right? So, right. Do you see things changing as far as when we we see this kind of shift, like you said, people, whether it's working at home and you need that second office, or because you're not commuting, you can move a bit further out of a city center and not have to worry about that. Is it shifting or do you think it will shift neighborhoods in that they will become even more self-sufficient? Because you still want to be able, I think, to go to restaurants, to have parks, to have uh, grocery stores, pharmacies. You still want to be able to have that in your neighborhood. Well, you know, some people definitely, you know, we've seen over the last couple of years, the luxury, maybe you work downtown and now you can live remotely you, you know people are moving to the island and even to the Okanagan but I think when we go back and, and look at our numbers that's why the Fraser Valley is booming so much because you were living potentially downtown in your condominium and you can sell your condominium and almost buy a house uh, in the valley here and, and have more space and um, you know and, and enjoy uh, having a bigger home and working from home. Which I would imagine, have you seen then a shift as well from the the focus being on transit in that there are many parts of the Fraser Valley that if you're somebody who works in downtown Vancouver, transit options aren't always great. It can take a long time to get from point A to point B, but has that kind of not, that's not a number one issue anymore because of those other options and other ways of working? Well, it, it, it's not as critical as it used to be, but if we, again, talk about the Fraser Valley, they're expanding the SkyTrain now from uh, the city of Surrey, or like Surrey Centre, out towards Langley, up towards Guilford. Like, I don't know when it's going to be built, but they started the construction and the, the road work already in the clearing. So that is is uh, creating uh, the demand, too, just being the, the better transportation models that are going to be available when that's built. All right. Well, interesting numbers coming again a day after we were talking about the assessments for for many other parts of the province as well. Larry Anderson, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jill. It was a pleasure talking to you. Well, we've talked about supply chain issues in the past on this program, going back to those warnings about get your Christmas shopping done early because you don't know what's going to be on the shelves. Well, some new issues are coming to light. These are also to do with the supply chain, but also construction and challenges to the construction industry because of supply. Joining us to talk more about that is Chris Gardner, president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Hey, Chris. Hey, good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for doing this. What is the issue or what is sticking out right now as far as the supply chain and causing a problem for construction? Well, we just did a survey of, uh, we do an annual survey of our 3,500 members and, and clients. And all the, primarily the majority of them are construction contractors. And what's interesting in this survey result is that for the first time, we've seen uh, the supply chain issues join uh, the shortage of labor as the two headline issues facing the uh, facing the construction industry. Now that's COVID aside. Obviously, COVID is the is the is the big issue, but supply chain is showing up for the first time in a very significant way. Seventy five percent 
of construction companies across the province are reporting challenges in getting the materials that they need um, uh, to the to the projects uh, to the project sites, and that's impacting projects in two significant ways. It's driving costs up, and it's causing delays in uh, in a number of projects. So, are we talking about things like the lumber uh, to build a wall, or are we talking about the bathroom fixtures to finish the project? You know, we're talking about pretty well everything. Everything that would include plastics, paint, uh, fixtures, uh, finishings. Uh, rebar, uh, cement, you just go down the list. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion as we've come through COVID on the impact on global supply chains. And because the supply chains are now certainly in British, in the construction sector in British Columbia, they're definitely regional. They're North America wide, and in some cases they are global. And um, so what happened as we, as we went through COVID, everything slowed right down. Uh, We had a lockdown, a global lockdown for the first time probably ever. Um, And and then last year, about at the end of the first quarter, the economy started to come back very, very sharply. And that sharp increase in demand um, put a lot of pressure on, on supply chains and supply chains were not able to respond. And they weren't able to respond because there's a shortage of labor and and they just they had just uh, dialed down everything and they just couldn't respond as, as quickly as demand warranted. And I understand too. So if, if we look at something like lumber, because lumber has been one also that throughout this pandemic, we've seen such a demand. People were doing home renovations and, and, and there was this demand. The price skyrocketed, came back down. So has that kind of calmed down or are we now seeing also a supply issue when it comes to that? Well, what's happened is that you go through these 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 spikes. So the price of lumber uh, increased in some cases up to four times. Uh, it's still higher than it was pre-COVID because there are still demand is outstripping the ability of, of suppliers to uh, to meet demand. Um, the challenge now is that it's it's run across so many different types of materials that go into whether you're you know you're building a community center, a hospital. Uh, a new housing complex, whether that's townhomes or, or condo, condominiums. And so um, so it really is running across the entire construction value chain. And it's, and it's compounded by the fact that we do have a shortage of labor across our economy, but it's being felt acutely in construction. And so that those twin forces of labor shortage and supply chain pressures mean that construction prices uh, are going up. And so if you think of how that's going to reveal itself in the, in the housing market, if you're a first-time home buyer, trying to get into the market is now, you know, going to be, it's going to cost more. And it's just another pressure, upward pressure on the cost of housing. And do you think, are we seeing it now or is the issue that we're seeing now as far as supply, is it something that we're going to be seeing, say, eight months or 12 months from now? I think that we will work through some of these issues in 2022. But I don't think that we're going to get through this entirely this year. We're now going through another wave of, uh, of COVID-19. And yesterday, Dr. Bonnie Henry said that businesses should be prepared to see up to a third of their workforce uh, become ill and, and, and be forced to stay home. That's going to put a, another strain on the economy, on supply chains. 
So I think we've got some time to, there's going to be some time to work through this. This is not a short term, there's no short term solution here. Certainly on the labor side, there's no short term solution to, there's just not enough Canadians entering the workforce. We're going to become more productive. Immigration is going to be a key part of that. On the supply chain, we've got to work through a lot of the, uh, of, uh, regional and global logistics that just cannot be solved in a, in a short period of time. Uh, and I understand as well, even looking at things, it's one thing to think about supplies and materials that could be in short supply, but even equipment, that there's also an issue with the equipment that's essential, whether it's getting a site ready for construction or during the construction, that there is an issue there as well. Yeah, you know, one of the things we highlight in the survey is... Um, is, is the issue, there is an issue with the shortage of dump trucks and dump truck drivers. And it's one of those things we highlight because people generally don't think of that when they think of the shortage of labor, shortage of, of, of supplies and materials. But dump truck drivers are an essential part of the construction value chain. And um, before Christmas, we had a meeting with the 12 largest uh, contractors that, that, can, that use uh, dump trucks for the the work they do on construction sites. And three of them gave me an example where on any given day, they need 500 trucks going to sites in the lower mainland, and they only had 150. Um, So it's an acute problem that's now revealing itself, and it's another cost pressure. It's another uh, example of how projects get slowed down and uh, and delayed. Uh, If you don't have enough trucks to carry materials away from the site or bring material to a site, uh, you're going to have a problem. And and is it the equipment itself? Is it a lack of trucks or like you said, or is it, is it a shortage of people to actually drive them? It's both. You know, if you wanted to uh, place an order for a new dump truck today, most of the major manufacturers will not take an order for a new dump truck until the end of this year. And then it's going to take you another 12 to 18 months to get delivery of that truck. So that's the first problem. The second part of the problem is uh, you get the truck uh, and it's finding someone uh, to drive it. And uh, so whether it's electricians or plumbers, carpenters, drywallers or truck drivers, there's a shortage of labor that's revealing itself in every part of the construction sector. And, and for that matter, across our entire economy, whether it's, you know, people working in restaurants or doctors, teachers, uh, it, it really is. We are in a very, very significant labor shortage in, in, in British Columbia and in Canada. Uh, how do you see this playing out then? Because construction has been one of the industries that seems to have been more resilient. Even if we go back to the beginning of the pandemic, sites stayed operating, crews stayed on site. I know what we're dealing with now is much more transmissible. So is it being hit more now as well? Well, uh, you are right. It was deemed an essential service at the outset of, uh, of the pandemic. And that kept, you know, this morning, nearly 250,000 men and women woke up and went to a construction site in this province. The work that they do accounts for nearly 10% of our economic activity in British Columbia. It's a vital part of our, uh, of our, of our economic output. And it was resilient. Um, I would say that, uh, but it's not immune from the Omicron variant. Um, you know, it's spreading rapidly and the numbers are going up. Um, but, you know, it is, um, if there are young people considering a career in the trades, this is an excellent time because 
um, wages and benefits have never been higher. There are tremendous opportunities to learn a skill and start a business. And it's that entrepreneurial side of construction we don't talk about enough. Every single construction company is a business. It's a small business, medium-sized business, and there are tremendous opportunities. But it is under pressure. Uh, there's a shortage of labor. There's, a, there's supply chain issues. Costs are going up. And if you're a contractor today, your margins are under significant pressure. All of this is, while it's increasing costs for the end user, it is also putting an enormous amount of pressure on the profitability of construction contractors. All right. Well, interesting findings and uh, interesting to talk about those issues and the supply chain shortages. Chris, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you very much.